When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler. And today we're going to be diving into the classic 1981 film, Mommy Dearest. Right up at the top, just want to give a content warning for discussions of child abuse, particularly physical abuse against children. So if that's a tough topic for you, just want to let you know that that's going to be coming up. Since I am recording this episode for the week of Thanksgiving, I thought, why not talk about a film that's all about difficult family relationships? Because I know many of you will be listening to this the day after having some difficult family interactions. So let's just keep the good times rolling. (laughs) But this is a movie that I have wanted to do for a while. I don't know how well known it is. It's kind of like a cult classic. There's an element of camp to the movie that I know has made it popular in some circles. But it's also... An older movie, so no un- no worries if you if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, essentially the film Mommy Dearest is based on a tell-all book that was written by Christina Crawford about her experiences with her mother Joan Crawford, who perpetrated some pretty intense abuse against Christina up until she turned thirteen and moved to a boarding school where she was able to get away from her mother. There is quite a bit of controversy over the claims in both the book and the movie, and I'm going to be focusing only on the movie in this episode, and so I just want to like upfront kind of give a blanket statement about kind of like believing victims and say that, you know, it is my belief and my opinion that we should believe victims for what they say and what their experience was. And that I, I'm not going to be getting into like the nitty gritty of the details of Christina Crawford's book. Um, but if you do end up like doing any more reading on this, or even if you read through any of the sources I have listed on the website, you may see mentions of this that um, there are some, yeah, there are just people that don't necessarily believe her and a lot of celebrities who were like friends or colleagues with Joan Crawford kind of came out and said that this book wasn't true. And even some of Christina's own siblings have said that the the events of the book were not true. So it's a complicated one. But again, I'm not going to get into like just trying to disprove or not if, if the events are actually true. I just think that this film is a good opportunity to talk about some things like child abuse and some types of mental health disorders 
And so I'm going to use it as a vehicle for that. I also do want to point out that it is fairly common for certain children in a family to be targets of abuse and other children to not be. So it is not out of the realm of possibility that Christina was the only child being abused in the family and that the other siblings are right in their assessment that there was no abuse. It's very common. It often happens when there's big age gaps as well, that maybe the baby of the family has many years between them and the older siblings, and so they aren't aware of what's going on. But it is entirely possible for there to be only one child in a family with multiple children to be facing abuse or neglect while the other children are not experiencing that. So if that is like a piece of evidence for disputing Christina, I want to say that like it's not good evidence um, because it is possible that Christina as the oldest daughter experienced things that the younger children did not experience based on like what was going on with their mother as like they aged And also a reminder that all of Joan Crawford's children were adopted, and so we don't know what they were going through before they came into the home, where Joan was when she adopted them. There's just a lot going on there. So just to put all that aside, I will be focusing on the film more and, you know, kind of working within the world of the film. So it's less about if it's true or not, but just about what are the things that we can look at and kind of understand about the presentation (laughs) of the characters in the film. A quick synopsis of the film is that it follows the life of Joan Crawford, who uh, is shown to be pretty obsessive about keeping her house and herself clean. Her house is always spotless, and we see the character like constantly berating her cleaning staff to make sure that the house remains spotless. We see that Joan is in a relationship with a Hollywood lawyer, and she wants to have a baby, but she's not able to get pregnant. So she ends up adopting um, her first two children, Christina and Christopher. Christina is shown in the film to live kind of like a double life where in the public eye, she seems to be receiving lots of gifts and lots of attention, but behind closed doors, she's very strictly disciplined. Uh, Anytime that Christina in the film pushes back against her mother, intense conflicts come up, for example after like a, a race in the swimming pool where Christina begets, becomes upset after her, her mother wins the race, Joan gets so mad at her for her reaction that she drags her into the pool house and locks her in there. Uh, at another point in the film, she gets upset with Christina for playing with her makeup, so she cuts off chunks of her daughter's hair. The most infamous scene from the movie is one where Joan wakes up in the middle of the night and goes into the children's room and sees that Christina's dresses are on wire hangers, and that's like one of her rules is no wire hangers, and she starts screaming, wakes up Christina, and and begins to beat her with the wire hanger. Several years later, the film kind of fast-forwards. She's gone to a boarding school. She gets caught kissing a boy, and so Joan brings her home. When she comes home, a reporter is there to interview Joan and witnesses a confrontation where Joan begins to physically assault Christina, and begins choking her to the point where Christina is like on the floor and people have to pull Joan off of her. She's then sent to another private school, which I think is like a Catholic school, and essentially like cut off from the world and from her mother. The rest of the movie then kind of follows Joan's um, decline, where she ends up somehow involved in the company that makes Pepsi, 
and like starts to tank the company and Christina kind of like goes on her own and as an adult is living her life separated from her mother until her mother's death in 1977. The end of the film is adult Christina and her brother Christopher learning that they were disinherited from the will, essentially the children being resigned to this is how they're treated, where the other two children received the rest of the inheritance. So yeah, it's a pretty rough film. I would say that most of it is like focused on the either the conflict between Joan and Christina or um, Joan's kind of lavish public life lifestyle and her tumultuous uh relationship history because she she goes through several partners over the course of the film so i wouldn't say it's necessarily a relaxing movie to watch or even a, a very good movie it's kind of a kind of a silly movie and it has won quite a few razzie awards um and faye dunaway even later came out in her career and said that she regretted taking on the role because it was played more as like a caricature which is one of the reasons why the film kind of comes off as campy and may be seen as like having funny moments or having camp moments when the reality is, is like it is a film about, you know, someone's story of, of going through intense childhood abuse. But it is seen as like kind of a silly film because of the, the performances in it. And I have to say, like the, the iconic scene of Faye Dunaway screaming no wire hangers is like kind of a meme, right? Like it's a crazy part of the movie and it's kind of funny because of how she plays it but if you think about like the real world parallel like that is very scary and not at all an appropriate way for a child to be treated ever I mean really anyone to be treated that way but you can see if you've watched the film like how it becomes how it can be perceived as like camp or silly because everything is just so over the top so the main thing that I want to talk about in the context of this movie is how the film has been used as an example of either obsessive compulsive disorder or borderline personality disorder. Now, you know the mantra in the show is we don't diagnose, and I think it can be really difficult to diagnose from a movie. However, there is a lot of discourse about this film on the internet, and these are the two main diagnoses that I was seeing being kind of thrown around to attempt to explain the behavior that's seen in the film. So if we like pull back, look at this as a like a, a film that's potentially fictional or take some creative liberty, then uh, you know I think we could talk about these types of symptoms without saying this is definitively a diagnosis that Joan Crawford had. And I think this gives me a good opportunity to provide some education about these two diagnoses, which are like pretty heavily stigmatized diagnoses um, and often thrown around without much understanding for what the diagnosis is. Like if you've ever heard someone say, oh, I'm so OCD because I like things to be organized, that is kind of like a bastardization of the term and is really like divorced from the actual diagnosis of OCD, which it can be like quite impairing. So I'm going to go through both and talk about things in the film that could be seen as Symptoms of either one uh, provide a little more background on those disorders, and yeah, that should be the bulk of this episode, so let's dive in. So let's start with Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, or OCD. So the main components of OCD are patterns of unwanted thoughts or fears that lead a person to do repetitive, 
repetitive behaviors, which are the compulsions. So the obsession part or obsessive part comes from the cognitive symptoms and the compulsions comes from the behavioral part. We may often use the term intrusive thoughts when talking about OCD as well as the obsessions or unwanted thoughts are intruding into the person's awareness. They are not necessarily something that the person is purposefully thinking about. And examples of intrusive thoughts may have to do with like suicide, harming other people. Um, It may even be thoughts that are like not thoughts you would normally have, like maybe racist or sexist in content. And part of, I think, the stigma that comes up when talking about OCD is that the unwanted thoughts can be really shameful because they're things that like the person would not think about on their own. And so talking about them can bring a lot of shame to people and embarrassment. And if you don't know about this like concept of unwanted and intrusive thoughts, then it may be easy to like blame the person having the obsessions or the obsessive thoughts to blame them for being like a bad person who has bad thoughts. And that's one of the like stigmas that I think comes up about OCD is that if you're having the unwanted and intrusive thoughts, it somehow means that like you really believe those things. And that is the exact opposite of the definition of intrusive thoughts. And so something to keep in mind, if you know anyone with OCD and are interacting with them, that often those thoughts, they don't have control of them and often they are counter to what the person often believes. The compulsive or compulsion part develops as a a coping strategy for the anxiety that the obsessive thoughts brings. So often compulsions will develop because they the first time they were done, they ease the stress that came with the thought. So they become reinforced and then get tied into the pattern and become more and more intense behaviors. The kind of vicious cycle of OCD is that the compulsions don't get rid of all of the stress that comes from the unwanted thoughts. The unwanted thoughts may come back. And so then the compulsion has to be done again. And even in the face of the compulsion, the thought comes back. So that's how the cycle kind of gets started is the compulsion doesn't make the thought go away. And so when the thought is still there, the compulsion has to be done again. Compulsions can really be anything. They typically have themes such as um, cleaning behaviors, checking behaviors, counting, following routines, or demanding reassurance. That can be a compulsion as well. So if you or someone you know experiences these things, this may be a, a sign to get some help and get some assessment. There, that doesn't mean that like other things can't be compulsions. There are often things that are like underreported or um, are more rare. And so just because a compulsion doesn't fit into this list doesn't mean it would meet the criteria. These are just some of the more common themes. And we might see that someone starts with a washing compulsion, like washing their hands, and it starts to spread to washing other things, like maybe washing their whole arm or washing their whole body before they leave the house. Now, in the film, Mommy Dearest, we actually do see a, an example of what could be considered a compulsion is that every day, uh, Joan Crawford's char- the character wakes up at 4 a.m., scrubs her face and arms with boiling water, and then plunges her face into a bowl of witch hazel and ice. And she does that every day. Now, because we don't know what internally is going on with her, because the, the story is not told from her perspective necessarily, 
We don't know if this is in response to an obsession. Let's just say for the sake of argument that if she wakes up in the morning and has these thoughts of um, maybe she has thoughts that she won't get a part in a play or in a, in a movie if she doesn't make sure that she's clean. Or she may have thoughts about being contaminated. Like maybe she has unwanted thoughts that she is sick or there are bacteria on her. And so this is a behavior, a compulsion that is supposed to ease that thought. So by washing, she may ease the obsessive or unwanted thought. There's also a couple more examples throughout the movie where she's very fixated on things being spotless and and clean, even though they appear to be clean, she perceives them as not clean. And so that could be a a sign of maybe an unwanted thought that the, the world is dirty, the room is dirty, and it must be cleaned compulsively, even if the other people around her perceive it to be clean. And that's another thing that can be really hard for people living with OCD is that the unwanted thoughts may portray a world that is more dangerous or contaminated or broken in some way and the people around them don't see the world that way like they're not having the same thoughts and so there becomes a disconnect and that also contributes to the shame of you know I, I'm seeing the world this this way and everything seems to be hinging on keeping people safe or keeping people healthy and no one else is seeing seeing that same thing so it's hard to talk about when the people around you don't seem to understand. I, I've had friends who have the, some of the contamination thoughts um, or who have thoughts about things like if they don't pick up a piece of trash, then a family member will die. And so it's not necessarily that like the trash is dirty, but that it could, that somehow, whether it's God or the universe or, you know, some sort of higher power will punish this person by killing a family member if they don't do this action, like picking up litter or keeping their house clean. So sometimes the thoughts are, they seem to be unrelated to what the the compulsion is or seem to have this like extra element to them. And again, something that can be really shameful for people with OCD is it's hard to talk about that. Like, how do you explain that to people? But it makes sense internally. And the compulsion has become so reinforced to the obsession that the cycle seems to make sense to the person internally, but it's hard to describe to other people. Same as compulsions, obsessions can have themes like contamination, aggressive or scary thoughts about harm coming to you or yourself, or even things like unwanted thoughts about um, maybe like sexual content or uh, violent content. Again, these thoughts are not purposely being brought up. They're coming up out of the blue, even in the middle of someone trying to distract themselves or trying to do other things. And so the intense anxiety and distress that comes up when the thoughts have are what often leads to the compulsion. There are different levels of OCD. There are usually in the DSM, we list things from mild, moderate, or severe. And depending on how many symptoms and how much the disorder impairs functioning is how we decide if it's mild, moderate, or severe. Also, you may be diagnosed, someone could be diagnosed with a type of OCD, like maybe mostly around contamination, but it doesn't mean that it'll always be that way. There is a possibility that the kind of content of the thoughts or theme of the compulsions might change. However, regardless of what the theme is or the severity rating, the criteria that you need to meet to be diagnosed with OCD is that it impairs functioning in some way. So even if someone is diagnosed with a mild case 
a mild case, like it's a mild case of the flu. If they're diagnosed with OCD mild or even moderate, it doesn't mean that that person is able to function like someone who doesn't have OCD. There is a criteria within that diagnosis that means it impairs functioning in some way. It may impair someone's ability to get a job if their compulsions maybe take up so much time that they're not able to get on work on time so they get fired. It may impair their ability to have interpersonal relationships. Often a coping behavior with people who have OCD would be to self-isolate, especially if the unwanted thoughts are about harming people that you know or are the those unwanted like um, sexual or aggressive thoughts. It may be like about the people you spend time with. So uh, the person may try to isolate and that means that they lose interpersonal relationships and become socially isolated, which would be impairment of interpersonal functioning. Same thing like with school, it may make it hard to get to class on time or to finish assignments depending on how much time is taken up by the compulsions. Um, And so that's just, again, a reminder that no matter what type of OCD, like what severity or like uh, theme, it has to have some level of impairment to function. And so that is part of why it is like a, a, a myth or a misnomer to say, oh, I like things organized, so I'm OCD. Because did it take, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to organize everything on your desk? No, it's just you moved a pencil <laughs> to be in the right way. It's not impairing your life. And to equate like liking organization, which could be like a personality type or, you know, just like a, there are individual differences around that. To compare that to the very distressing experience of having thoughts about very painful or dangerous or upsetting things and then feeling like you have to do a behavior to make those thoughts go away, that's very different, right? So I'm hoping if you're listening to this, you can begin to take that out of your language if you do use it to not compare just wanting things to be organized to um, this disorder. Because one, it, it doesn't make space for people who actually have the disorder and, and you know, maybe needing support in the environment to deal with their symptoms. And two, it can limit people from getting help because if they think, well, OCD is just this one thing and I'm experiencing something else, I don't know what I have, right? So I'm not going to ask, I can't ask for help because I don't know what it is that I have. So that would be kind of my takeaways. I hope that this language can, we can start to move away from that. And that also doesn't mean that organizing can't also be a compulsion. There are definitely presentations of OCD wherein organizing things becomes the compulsion. Like maybe going through your pantry and organizing everything to face the same way could be a compulsive behavior. The difference is that often as the compulsion becomes reinforced and the the cycle, you know, kind of strengthens in its power, it's not just that the person is going through the pantry and facing everything around the same time. They might be doing it over and over and over again, or they do it and then they go back to check to make sure that it's still in the same order. It starts to become more than just the organizing. There's like a lot of stuff that gets built up with it and that the service of the organizing is to reduce the stress of an unwanted thought that could be like, someone in my family will die in a car accident if I don't organize my pantry, right? It's, it's, It's related to those thoughts. It's not just Oh, because I like these things. It helps to reduce some some of the anxiety. But remembering that doing the compulsions may reduce the anxiety temporarily, but it doesn't eliminate the unwanted thought and it doesn't eliminate the anxiety in the long run. So the solution is what, what do I say every time, to go to therapy. 
And medication is usually highly recommended for OCD as well. So I would highly recommend a like medication consult if you are someone who is living with OCD. In the context of the film Mommy Dearest, I think it could be possible to understand some of the discord and tension between Joan and Christina as a function or consequence of the OCD in that, you know, Joan is, if she has OCD, right, if some of these behaviors we're seeing are part of OCD and is having these obsessive thoughts, having the obsessions and the distress that comes with them and sees that her daughter is doing things counter to her compulsions, it may trigger more anxiety or distress and hence her kind of latching out. It could also be possible that some of the unwanted thoughts do focus on Christina. So, for example, and again, I'm just I'm just speculating here. I'm not saying this really happened. But for example, let's say that Joan was having some unwanted thoughts about like uh, unwanted aggressive thoughts about her daughter, wherein she might have images that pop into her mind intrusively about hurting her daughter or her daughter hurting her, maybe seeing images of Christina attacking her. And that would be the the upset or the unwanted thought. And the compulsion then becomes something to alleviate that distress. So maybe disciplining Christina more harshly to prevent that potential thought from coming true. Or um trying to, you know, make sure that Christina is as clean as possible to avoid like a contamination that maybe the unwanted thought is about. So it is possible that the relationship between Joan's behavior toward her daughter and a potential diagnosis of OCD is possible, that those things could be related and it could explain why her reaction to one child was so much more extreme than it was to the other children if Christina is like a feature of some of these unwanted thoughts. And again, it is possible for only one child to be the focus of abuse or neglect in a household with multiple children, and this could give us an explanation for how that pathway is developed. It's also pretty clear in the film and in other like interviews that Christina has given that Joan um, struggled with alcohol use. And interestingly enough, there is a pretty interesting connection between alcohol use disorders and OCD. Um, I have some stats here. Uh, About a quarter of the people who are diagnosed with OCD uh, will also have a diagnosis of a substance use disorder. And of those people who have the comorbid OCD with with a substance use disorder, uh, report that the OCD came first and the substance use disorder was almost developed afterwards, like almost as a coping skill. And anecdotal or qualitative research has shown that people with OCD describe drinking as like a relief from the obsessions because it kind of, the, the cognitive effects of alcohol may reduce the intensities of the thought or make it easier to be distracted from it because the, the mind is, is so impacted by alcohol. However, there is a rebound effect. And so after drink, the day after drinking, the obsessions and compulsions may be worse. So the person turns to alcohol again to continue to, to dull or numb that experience. And then that cycle develops into a dependency on alcohol. So that is how that like kind of quarter of people may, quarter of that population may develop both. So it, it's common. And it, it's not always alcohol. It can be other um, substances as well. But I think, again, it shows how it's possible that someone who 
in this film is presented as being so concerned with like cleanliness and control also engages in using a substance that inherently lowers your control over yourself. And often that can be as a way to kind of cope with the difficult symptoms and particularly with the thoughts. Like the drinking is to to kind of numb the thoughts so that the person can have like a moment without having to do their compulsions. So it is possible that if Joan Crawford in this film has OCD, that the alcohol use is coming from a place of coping with the the um with the obsession so that the compulsions don't have to be done and because the compulsions do come back eventually when you sober up it reinforces continuing to drink the alcohol so that maintains that that relationship and as i have talked about in other episodes particularly in the episode about the shining alcohol is related to higher levels of aggression so could explain why Joan is so aggressive toward Christina when she's under the influence because that um, like the inhibitory process for aggression is reduced and so it's easier for her to kind of get worked up and and get into uh, a place where she's physically assaulting her own child. And I think this is important to, to bring up because often people with disorders um, like OCD or even like a major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder may find that self-medicating with things like alcohol, marijuana, other substances gives them some relief from their their symptoms, that the mood symptoms aren't as intense or you get a break from the cognitive symptoms when you're under the influence. Um, and so it's it's not an unusual experience. And we want to be careful when self-medicating because if we're not able to treat that underlying issue, then the substance use unfortunately can become dysfunctional like quite quickly. Now, I'm not saying that if you're a person who like wants to have a glass of wine after a bad day, that that means you have a substance use disorder. Not at all. I think we all self-medicate like that and it may not be alcohol for you. It may be chocolate or reality TV, right? Like we all have stuff that we use when we just kind of need a break from our thoughts or our emotions and we just kind of want to soothe ourselves. So I'm not saying that stuff leads to substance use disorders. However, if you are someone with a mental health condition and it's untreated, it could be a potential danger zone for a substance use disorder to develop in if that is how the 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 sub, the mental health disorder is being treated. So, I highly encourage you if you have a mental health condition and it's currently being untreated to seek treatment for that and run it by your provider, your substance use, to kind of see if where you're at is good for you, if it's appropriate for you. I've said this in previous episodes, like I've never been a an abstinence-only advocate for everyone, but if that is what you want to do, then you can also get support from your provider there. And I think sometimes it's just helpful to kind of like talk it out with someone about, you know, how does substance make you feel? Are there things you want to do? when you're under the influence of substances that you can't do? Like, is it preventing you from things? There's just like a lot of conversation to be had around substance use. And so my hope is that everyone would have a provider who's that makes space for that and doesn't just say you have to go to AA um, or you have to go to treatment. But I think that, you know, overall, there is space to do that in like therapy or, well, mostly in therapy, I was about to say, or psychiatrists. 
Um, but I think our psychiatrists are often overworked and don't have the time to process all of that with us. Um, but you do need to tell your psychiatrist and your doctor if you're on medication and you're using substances. That's a separate issue. But if you just want to talk about like, you know, am I using substances to manage my symptoms and how is that working for me? I really encourage you to bring it up with your provider and basically get a second opinion on it and see like where your thoughts and feelings and behaviors are around substances. Um, but yeah, so I just, I, I bring up this example of alcohol and OCD to show how it can like the extreme of self-medicating and that it's possible this film, Mommy Dearest, does show us examples of someone who is self-medicating and whose alcohol use has become problematic because it is unfortunately a um, antecedent for child abuse. So probably some problematic substance use there. Okay, so that's OCD. It's in a nutshell. I'm sure we could, there's more to talk about. Um, but that's kind of like an overview of it. So the second disorder I wanted to talk about was borderline personality disorder. This also gets thrown around a lot. Um, and if you Google characters with borderline personality disorder, mommy dearest pops up. Again, it's not formally been diagnosed. John, Joan Crawford was also not formally diagnosed with this. So if we're just going off of what's presented in the film, Mommy Dearest, there is something that we could talk about in terms of BPD. So the symptoms of borderline personality disorder include an intense fear of abandonment, such as going to extreme measures to avoid real or imagined separation or rejection, a pattern of unstable, intense relationships, such as idealizing someone one moment and then suddenly believing that person doesn't care or is cruel, Rapid changes in self-identity and self-image that include shifting goals and values or having a hard time kind of um, pinning down identity. Periods of stress-related paranoia or disassociation lasting from a few minutes to a few hours. Impulsive and risky behavior that includes things like gambling, unsafe sex, um, binge spending, binge eating, substance use, or sabotaging um, things like jobs or relationships. Suicidal threats or behavior or self-harm, often in response to perceived or real rejection. Wide mood swings that last for a few hours to a few days, but with under the timeline for what would be bipolar disorder, including intense happiness, shame, irritability, or anxiety. Ongoing feelings of emptiness and intense inappropriate anger um, that can even lead to things like physical aggression. And I think that it's important to talk about the um, the paranoia symptom because often what I've what I've seen in my experience in clinical settings is that if someone presents with paranoia, the first thing we think is schizophrenia, and we immediately shift to like a psychotic disorder and assessing for that. But that's it's not the only disorder that comes with um, symptoms of paranoia, and it's important to remember that borderline personality disorder can have presentations of paranoia, and it's usually in periods of of stress. It's almost like a a reaction to stress that the person may be having. So I guess this is more directed toward my (laughs) my fellow mental health professionals. But if someone is presenting with paranoia, it's important to kind of ask about the circumstances surrounding it. And if this only happens when the person is stressed out or if it's pretty content, like consistent and how long it lasts. So in, in BPD, it often doesn't last much longer than a few hours, um, so it, it should be kind of ebbing and flowing throughout the day. If it's not, then that's when we would you know, shift more toward a psychotic disorder. 
But if it's only happening for like, you know, half an hour at a time, um, and particularly within big periods of stress, then we might be thinking more along the lines of this diagnosis. Disassociation is also a big one that happens in um, BPD. It's hard to diagnose because people tend to not remember that they disassociated because that's part of the function that disassociation serves is to give your brain a minute to kind of check out of something that's a lot, maybe overstimulating, threatening, whatever the brain perceives it to be. It gives you and your brain a chance to kind of check out. And so often uh, you may not be consciously aware of what's happening during disassociation or may not like encode memories during that time. In order to meet criteria for BPD, I believe you need five of those symptoms to be happening. Uh, they need to, the person needs to be over the age of 18 to receive a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And we want to see these things being pretty consistent across the lifespan. So if out of the blue, somebody starts experiencing these symptoms, uh, we're going to want to look at something else, a different type of diagnosis. And often bipolar disorder and BPD get uh, misdiagnosed as each other. But if this is a pattern of behavior that's been pretty consistent across the lifespan, then we might want to consider BPD. And the reason I bring that up is because with all personality disorders, um, we're looking at lifelong patterns. They typically start to manifest in early adulthood or adolescence and then continue um, through like adulthood. It is not something that happens out of the blue. Uh, there's often signs or symptoms um, th through the, the development of the person's life. It's also a common misconception that personality disorders uh, are treatment resistant or that there is no treatment for them. That is definitely not true. Uh, particularly for borderline personality disorder, there's several types of treatments that are, are recommended. DBT or dialectical behavior therapy is the primary one that's recommended. Um, there's also, uh, I believe it's called transference focused therapy. That one is found to have pretty good efficacy with uh, borderline personality disorder. But DBT is going to be like the standard uh, and is probably going to be more accessible than transference focused. Uh, and sometimes medication is also recommended for people with uh, borderline personality disorder, particularly to help manage the, um, the mood symptoms, like the mood swings or rapid changes. We can't give you a medication to, you know, address ongoing feelings of emptiness, right? Like we don't have a medication that will fix intense fears of abandonment or rejection. So I, I don't want it to seem like there is a, a specific medication that will cure BPD. But it can be helpful to have um, medication that targets the, the mood symptoms, particularly if, if that is what the person is struggling with. Um, and often the medication is in the concurrence with participating in something like DBT. Now, borderline personality disorder does have a biological component and an environmental component. There is a uh, idea that some people have biological vulnerabilities to intense emotional reactions to things, and that if you have someone with that biological vulnerability in an environment that's invalidating, then that's the perfect recipe for developing BPD. If we look at the film, uh, Mommy Dearest, we really don't know that much about how Joan Crawford grew up, um, but I would hazard a guess that Hollywood itself is an invalidating environment. And for people with BPD, 
continuing to be in invalidating environments does not make BPD go away. It often increases the intensity of the symptoms or doesn't help. Um, it doesn't help. <laughs> Full stop. It just doesn't help. And so Hollywood itself is pretty invalidating, particularly if we think about the age that Joan is at the time of this movie. I believe she's in her 30s when her like late 30s when she starts to adopt her children. And if we think about 1940s, 1950s Hollywood, uh, women who are in their late 30s are not going to be seen as desirable. So she's in a pretty invalidating environment where she's getting messages that like she's not pretty enough, she's not young enough, um, and that could contribute to this kind of like intensity of emotion as well as the feeling of like emptiness or who am I, lack, lack of identity that would match on to BPD. We also do see across the film that Joan throws herself into like pretty intense bouts of anger. So that intense anger, which can be a symptom of BPD, definitely um, is present. And I would be feel pretty confident categorizing that as inappropriate anger because it's often directed at a very young child. And Joan does not seem to have the ability to control her anger once she gets very angry. That can be something that is very difficult for people living with BPD is feeling very out of control of emotions and behaviors and then feeling like they're being punished for not having control. Um, That's part of the invalidating environment is the environment makes you feel like there's something wrong with you and you should be able to just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Now, I think this is true for a lot of mental health conditions is the kind of societal message is like, get over it, take a walk, stop being depressed. Um, but for people with BPD, I, this kind of becomes amplified because unfortunately, the kind of you know consequences or outcomes of living with this personality disorder, particularly when it's untreated, is that interpersonal relationships are very difficult to navigate for people with BPD. And so the environment continues to reinforce this idea of like, you're not lovable, you know, you're not able to be in relationship with other people. And it it doesn't send a great message, right? It doesn't send a great message and it doesn't make people happy (laughs) to say the least. So the environment maintains it's like invalidating nature. um, And that just continues to either escalate or maintain the symptoms. So if we go back to Joan, um, we also see that she does have a pattern of interpersonal relationships that kind of blow up in her face. She, over the course of the film, I believe is in three different marriages or at least three different relationships, several of them being marriages, and that those relationships have like really high highs and really low lows. And again, because the film is more focused on, you know, Christina's story, we don't see as much of that. But what you do see in the film are not examples of healthy relationships. And I think we could even look at it from the perspective of, you know, Joan gets taken advantage of by some of the men that she dates, most likely because of this kind of lack of identity um, and fear of rejection. And if you take those two aspects of uh, from the symptom lift, you, you take that like lack of identity or feeling of emptiness with fear of rejection, that makes a, a unfortunate soup uh, for people to be taken advantage of interpersonally. And there is a kind of... I guess it's like, I'd call it like a folk, <laughs> folk wisdom uh, saying that I've heard before that um, people with BPD and people with narcissistic personality disorder often end up in relationships with each other because the person with narcissistic personality disorder gets to feel like a star uh, when the 
person with BPD, you know, will do whatever it takes to avoid rejection. And the narcissist will then stay with the other person, which makes the BPD person feel like they're not being rejected. So often you'll see like a pairing of that. I don't know how like scientific that is, but it is kind of like an anecdotal um, thing that I've heard people say that those things kind of work out. And so I could see Joan being in this environment where uh, the men who are, I'm going to say the men who are in 1940s Hollywood are going to be narcissists. They're going to be a little more (laughs) angled that direction are getting something out of being in a relationship with her. However, when that, kind of cycle of fear of rejection becomes so intense that she, you know, starts to like beg for reassurance from the person, from the man, uh, they become disinterested and break it off with her. And then the cycle kind of continues. As with OCD, borderline personality disorder is uh, often comorbid with alcohol use or other substance use disorders. Um, Often that is another way to self-medicate in that when you're drinking or using substances, it can kind of dull that emotional intensity uh, or try to fill that feeling of emptiness. But then when the day, the next day comes and the alcohol or substances are out of your system, those feelings are still there. Uh, Eating disorders are also often pretty common with borderline personality disorder. uh, And then depression and PTSD are also really common. The PTSD one I think is important to highlight because um, One thing that you'll see in the history of people who've been diagnosed with BPD is often pretty intense trauma. Um, It's not always the case you can be diagnosed with BPD and not have a uh, history of childhood abuse, but there is a interesting correlation between uh, particularly childhood sexual abuse and borderline personality disorder. And so often that comes comorbid with PTSD. And if you are getting DBT treatment, there's three stages to DBT. And the second stage of DBT is off is um, trauma treatment. So if you're going through like traditional DBT, like the, the full shebang, um, stage two, which is usually approached after the um, like suicidal or self-harm behaviors have been managed after kind of like the, the frontline symptoms of BPD have been managed, then uh, stage two can happen, and that will be uh, focused on trauma while also still attending to uh, the potential for symptoms or complications of BPD to come up again as the trauma is processed. So it's built into one of the main treatments for borderline personality disorder is trauma treatment. So that shows you how intense the connection is. So again, if we return to the film, we could speculate that it's possible the character of Joan Crawford had a history of childhood abuse or trauma as well, which may have led her to this point. And just like with the point about OCD, the final point I would like you to take away about BPD is that um, although reading off a list of symptoms, it can sound really intense, there are many people who live with borderline personality disorder and have functioning lives are able to learn how to manage their behavior and their symptoms and, you know, go on to live fulfilling or functioning lives. And that the stigma around borderline personality disorder is is very negative, very painful. There are a lot of myths about BPD that un- unfortunately are sometimes grounded in a grain of truth, right? The grain of truth of like some of these symptoms of BPD, you know, here we are, we have what the symptoms are. 
and then myths kind of become extrapolated out against about those symptoms against people uh, living with this diagnosis. And at the end of the day, a personality disorder is still a mental health condition, right? Just because <laughs> the term personality disorder is not my favorite, right? Because that makes it seem like there's something wrong with like the entire core of who you are. But at the end of the day, it is a mental health condition. It's diagnosed out of the DSM, which is for mental health conditions. It is treated with um, mental health therapies and modalities or medications that are for other mental health conditions as well. It is no less of a mental health condition than OCD or depression, anxiety, PTSD, right? And and unfortunately, people with BPD often have a lot of these other comorbidities, comorbidities which makes treatment very difficult because we're trying to treat all these things at the same time. And the more, you know, we add onto the pile that we're trying to deal with, the more complicated and difficult it can become. So if you hear someone talking about BPD or being diagnosed with BPD, or you hear that term being thrown around, I would really encourage you to remember that one, it's a mental health condition. And what do we know about mental health conditions? They are not our fault, but they become our responsibility. And two, that there is a person behind the diagnosis and that the person behind that diagnosis is probably suffering in some way from what they've been going through. It is not a walk in the park, a walk in the sunshine to be diagnosed with BPD or to, you know, live through the symptoms of that. Um, And the kind of cultural narratives we have about BPD, I think, can be really painful to someone living with this diagnosis and can contribute to the shame, the the feelings of emptiness and lack of identity, right? It kind of reinforces all of that when you hear these messages out in the world that people with BPD are crazy or clingy or manipulative. And that's just not true, right? Just because you've been diagnosed with something doesn't mean that you are all of the things that people have an idea of around it. So if we consider both of these diagnoses in the context of Mommy Dearest, I think we see a little bit of evidence for either one being kind of played out. I would say that I don't think the film is a good <laughs> representation of either diagnosis. I think that if this was your only exposure to some like a representation of OCD or BPD, it would be very stigmatizing um because one in the film, you know, Joan is not treated as a complex character. She is treated as a caricature and it's just like these, you know, outrageous behaviors one after the other. And so if you were to say, oh, and this is a person who has these diagnoses, it doesn't give a nuanced portrayal. And two, because it, it is focused on Joan, but more focused on Christina, we don't get the whole picture. We don't know about Joan's internal world. We don't know about her background, her history. You know, we really are seeing a person in a moment of time. So I would be hesitant to say, like, you know, watch this film as an example of OCD or BPD or alcohol use disorder, because I don't think it is a nuanced version of that at all. I do think that if you watch it from the perspective of a child, you know, Christina's perspective, right, that a child went through these things, it gives us a good picture of what it's like to be a child growing up in a home where they are being targeted for abuse and neglect in a way that the other children in the home are not. And that is an unfortunate reality. Um, And I don't, I don't think that this film should be watched as like a camp film because at the core of the story is that this is a child's recollection or a teenager's recollection of what was done to them and the way in which they were mistreated. And I say abuse and neglect because, you know, then eventually Christina gets shipped off to boarding school and 
cut off from her family and friends. And I, I see that as like a form of neglect in that she's not able to have these relationships that, that she would have had before um, moving to the school. But we can hold a level of empathy for Christina um, in this movie. And regardless of, you know, what you believe about if it was true or not, if it's been refuted or not, something happened to this child to make them afraid of their mother and the home that they lived in. And that that is, uh, that is really sad and a really unfortunate reality of the world that we live in, that there are children who are afraid of their families, are afraid of their caregivers. And it is in that experience that we can hold empathy and understanding for Christina, that whatever happened to her was terrifying and she was experiencing that home as an unsafe place. And uh, Christina Crawford is still alive. Um, She's still, I believe she's still writing, um, living the dream. So I want to, you know, I do want to be like respectful of that and that, that she is still alive and still telling her story. And I think that it is an incredible feat of strength to, you know, tell your story in a public place, deal with all of the backlash and all of the, you know, claims that what you said is not true and still like keep going, keep sustaining yourself and building um, a life for yourself. So I think that's kind of ultimately where I fall at the end of the day is that I'm not going to use this film to nitpick <laughs> someone's experiences because it's a film and, and things are different. Um, and I know that uh, in interviews, Christina has said that she does not like the film at all and does not think it was an accurate portrayal. Um, so if you're more interested in like the details, then I would say go read the book or go read the other things that Christina herself has written about this experience. But if we're just looking at the movie, I think that it unfortunately is another example of how mental health conditions can become caricatures for the point of entertainment and that that is an unfortunate reality of Hollywood and that it does it did not stop in the 1980s, that it still happens to this day. And part of what I want to do on this show is like point out when that happens. So. Hopefully through my explanation of, you know, what is OCD and BPD, you can see how there are potentially elements of that in this film, but that it it becomes a almost like cartoonish representation of them. And so I would not walk away from this film or this episode thinking this is what OCD or BPD looks like or alcohol use disorder. I would look for other <laughs> nuanced portrayals of it. Um, I'm sure I will cover more in later episodes. Um, but that is the takeaway for this episode, that we can have a conversation about these diagnoses without diagnosing Joan, the real person, um, and know when we see a caricature and, uh, you know, kind of decide what to do with it when we see it in front of us. So I hope that everyone enjoyed this episode, that it wasn't too traumatizing after spending <laughs> maybe a holiday with your own family. And as always, I appreciate you always listening to the end of the episode, and I will see you in the next one. Bye-bye.